I think it's time for uh, Judge Jackson to reside over... Or the... Judge Jackson, as yeah. it's otherwise known. <laughs> you were doing a bit of the Sean Connery there, Judge Jackson. George Jackson. Not George Jackson, that's someone completely different. But... Take a memo, work that into our opening soundbite, the Sean Connery <laughs> voiceover. I'm just going to say, uh, George Jackson could probably do a better job than the people <laughs> residing over the Australian cricket team at the moment. We used from the future, which always helps with things like this, but uh, I want to put the, uh, the Australian cricket team on trial, but I want to be specific about who's up on charges here. Is it based on completion of homework or on well, field performance? We'll start with, we'll start with the, uh, the naughty boys who didn't do their homework, and uh, I think we'll extend up and above that to the, the captain, the coach, and the chairman of selectors, and arguably the head honcho himself, Mr Sutherland. So, how many is that on trial? Eight of them on trial, I believe? With at least 40 support staff, probably, yeah. Yeah. So, um, we'll start with the four naughty boys who didn't do their homework. How do you... How do you uh... Look, I think the whole thing was just completely mismanaged in general. Um, yeah. I guess... I'm sort of torn on it. When I first heard about it, I was just... I, my immediate reaction was just, you've got to be kidding me. You're dropping them for, like, not filling out a form, not doing the paperwork, all that sort of, you know, bureaucratic procedural bullshit that sports sports people are apparently expected to do these days. I don't buy into that at all. You should be... Yeah, it should just all be based on your performance on the field. But when I heard more about the details surrounding it and about the fact that it was, you know, just three points regarding feedback um, on how they could improve their performance, yeah, I I have to say, as much as I think it's rubbish to be asking the players to do that sort of crap, the four of them could have just dropped it down the first three things that came into their minds, chucked it under Mickey Arthur's door and been done with it. Was the penalty too harsh? Not so much. Well, the penalty itself was too harsh, but more the entire way it was communicated, it was handled and everything like that. If there was going to be some sort of reprimand or some sort of line in the sand moment, as they wanted to call it, mm. it absolutely should have been all kept in house and yeah furthermore as you say I don't think it should ever involve someone actually missing a test match particularly when we're <laughs> already 2-0 down and needing to win both remaining tests to, to have any chance to um, uh, retain the, the board of games control. Yeah. I mean my my issues with it weren't necessarily about the well about I mean putting all of the stuff aside I'm actually going to focus in on the exercise in the first place for that to have been productive I would have thought that it was it would have been much better if everybody had actually sat in the room, had a couple of drinks and done it that way. I think that the, the session, getting the collective group together, because it sounds like it was fragmenting anyway, isn't that the best way to, to get everybody back on site and saying, right, this is what we're all agreeing on to do moving forward? That's I, really what you have to weigh up, isn't it? It's the complete I effectiveness have, of I what mean, they were being asked to do versus yeah. how easy it would have been for those guys I mean, to just yeah, write it's, down I mean, and, you know, the, the Mickey Arthur, Michael Clark defence for these things is, is that it's not a difficult thing to ask somebody to do, and I agree with that. It's not difficult, no, but... it's more that it's I'd a argue, stupid thing to ask. I'd argue that it was... It's the type, If you're going to do something like that, the environment is just as important yeah. as the message, and pushing everybody away into separate groups, separate things, or as individuals to do these things, it doesn't achieve anything. What was the purpose associated with it? It actually means that whatever the final outcomes are, there's going to be a lack of sort of team ownership Absolutely. of those. Um, and, yeah, and that's final, exactly the point outcomes. that I was next about to make, is, is that the whole point of setting goals is, is that everybody, either individually or 
collectively as a team or as a group yeah. takes ownership of that and is expected to deliver about mm. against that because you've sat there and you've said, right, we all agree that this is the way we want to do. Does anybody have any objections? Right, let's get out there and do it. So I thought that it, it was a, it was actually the perfect environment if they needed this information to get everybody together, to get them on the same page, to stop some of this splintering and line in the sand moments from, from having to happen. Particularly when two of the blokes hadn't played a test so far in the series. Yeah. I mean, asking them for their feedback on an individual basis is pretty stupid. Yeah. So, I, I think... It, it, and that's what's so frustrating. It's all so fucking ridiculous. It just comes down to basic man management and yeah. how you want to be developing the strategies and, you know, specific targets for the team. And, I mean, the other thing for me is just, if this was the olden days where it was one coach, one player... Uh, sorry, one coach, one captain and ten other players in the team... I could understand needing to do an exercise this, like this, but the question I'd like to ask is, if, if the need is there for the individuals to do this and the information is going to be used to help formulate the strategies moving forward, what the hell are all the support staff yeah, doing? Exactly. Isn't, isn't this their job? Yeah. At the end of the day, if we've got Pat Howard and the entire hierarchy of performance management or whatever you want to call it underneath them, I mean, surely they should be the ones who are driving these sorts of processes. Surely it shouldn't come down to individual players having to give, you know, one-on-one feedback through to the... It's, it, all it sounds like is that they, they've just been a rabble in terms of just the basic fundamental principles of how they go about developing these strategies. Which, which is which is why, from my perspective, I think that the, um, the captain and the coach have to be put under the blowtorch here. Mm. Because these are leadership issues. Yeah. And and quite frankly, if these three points had been that important and they hadn't received them from those four players, then, I mean, what? To suddenly turn around and say, oh, guys, you haven't done these three points, you're getting dropped for a test match. I mean, surely there could have been some sort of phone call, quick tap on the shoulder from the coach, from the captain, from whoever to say, mate, we want to get those three points back from you, hopefully, in order to facilitate a a full discussion across the entire team in a couple of days' time. Like, it just seemed almost primary schoolish to just suddenly turn around and say, oh, sorry, guys, you haven't done your homework. You're going to be banned for a test match. Yeah, it's it's the the last gasp desperation heave in many respects of somebody who has lost a team or who... In, in these contexts, it's like, I'm going to draw a hard line here. It was basically, we're looking for something or anything to yeah. draw a hard line on. And, and at the end of the day, I think it's actually more an indictment of Clark and Arthur and the rest of the, um, the organisational structure that something like that was allowed to slip through the cracks. Yeah, <laughs> I agree. That's, and that's, I that's blame what those guys for the management and organisation of it rather than the ones who didn't get their three points in on time. Mm. Well, the four of them. The four, the of, four them, of them, yeah. So, yeah. But, I mean, I, yeah, look, I just think that the, the, the takeaway from this is, is that, yeah, I mean, it's clearly a fractured change room and... I think there has is to Clark, be... Is Clark the right guy to lead mm. it forward? So that's what it all comes down to. When you're talking about this sort of petty, just, yeah, bureaucratic bungling, I think it has to speak to larger issues 
waves of, I guess, discontent and, um, well, yes, just a lack of unity within the team. Mm. Because if everyone was on board on the same page and all pulling together towards the same, you know, overall mentality and objective, then stuff like this wouldn't be happening. Yeah. It's it's a symptom of a, a poor team culture and a mm. fractured, um, yeah, and a fractured so, team. So we're, we're going to find, uh, we're finding uh, Arthur and Clark guilty of mismanagement? Is that the, the judge's ruling? But if we do, and we take an equally harsh approach and say, right, Clark, you have to miss a test, we're really cutting off our nose to spite our face, aren't we? Well, I'm, I'm just saying you don't have to worry necessarily about the punishment. But, no, no, but we're saying that Clark as captain clearly seems to be bad for team unity because it's no yeah. coincidence that these issues have started happening since Ricky Ponting retired in particular yeah. and also since Huss retired as well. Yeah. It almost seems like since those two guys left... Clark has been really keen to sort of stamp his authority as King Dick. Yeah. And it clearly Boy, must have, Yeah, it must have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Because right now it sounds like he's King Dick. Well, and we've heard about... I mean, there's a lot of emails and scuttlebutt about Huss and Clark having a falling out and then after Huss's last test... Mm. The all of the non um, Huss versus Clark elements of that email have proven to be true. Yeah. So I suspect that there is a lot more truth than fiction to what that email is saying, and it all points towards what I like to call the triumvirate of cockheads, which is Michael Clark, Matthew Wade, and David Warner. Mm. Because I think personality-wise, those three guys would definitely be in cahoots together. And personality-wise, if those are the three sorts of cultural leaders that you've got within the test team at the moment, then we're in pretty big trouble. And I think that the problem is is that those three guys are arguably the only three, for right or wrong, they're arguably the only three that are walk-up starts right now. Yeah, I mean, t- two of those three, the two who aren't captain, they were the ones who charged charged yeah. in um, after the T20 against Sri Lanka when Glenn Maxwell had exchanged a few <laughs> expletives yeah. with um, Jay Wadner. They... Essentially, the situation would have simmered down once the yeah. match had finished. But they actually charged in from the sidelines and started to escalate things even further. And uh, to Joe Wadder's credit, he'd tell him to fuck off. Well, exactly. Was, uh, but see, Maxwell is always going to do that sort of thing in the heat of the moment, yeah. needing, I think it was, like, three fours of the last three balls, and he just hit two of them. Yeah. The blood's rushing, you know, the big show is taking st- centre stage. That's to be expected. But to be able to sit there on the sidelines and, you know, yeah. objectively assess that situation, Situation and then come charging in and start shoving players and, yeah, mm. just prancing around like tremendous... <laughs> well, I mean, and I think... That's far, far the, worse. Uh, yeah, and I think you made a, an interesting point via Twitter about the... Which uh, I quite frequently. Yeah, you did. Well, you, follow me on you Twitter. make points on Twitter, they're not always valid. <laughs> but um, the uh, Judasia send-off, I think that was... That was there's a bit of karmic retribution mm. for Davey there. And see, that's what I'm talking about. The type of guy who would be taunting them last summer saying, oh, I'm going to score even more runs on the Indian tracks next year and that sort of thing. That is just a a dumb thing to say. Just a dumb statement to make. And Mm. more often than not, that's the sort of thing we see coming out of David Warner's mouth or David Warner's Twitter feed. So we're going to put David Warner on trial as well here? (laughs) Yes, mental games. Got them where we want them. Yeah, that worked out really well for you, Davey. I mean, that yeah. sort of crap is embarrassing, but to then 
then look at that and think, this guy is, you know, probably the next in line for the captaincy right now. Yeah. That's far more frightening to me. Yeah. So I think it'll be very interesting to uh, to see what happens with the, the selection, which probably leads us to John Inverarity in his role. Do you right. find him... Do can I, can I jump in here? So having, I guess, resolved that assessment of the whole homework gate debacle, I'd like to move on to what I thought were the two most glaring instances of incompetence throughout this series. And they were the non-selection of Nathan Lyon for the second test and the general idea that Xavier Doherty and Glenn Maxwell could perform as spinners in a test match for Australia in India. Now, I might actually take the second point first. Can I add a third point in there? Get go for it. The fact that we took, what, six, maybe, specialist batsmen in a squad of 17? But I don't Which mind that I, so much because well, that, there was that, no I, one, there were no obvious well, better my, candidates, the, candidates at state the, level. The element is, is that it, op- it opened up... I mean, it made it really... I mean, they took six, but they might as well have taken five because uh, for some bizarre reason, point three, Kawaj never ever looked like getting a look in, irrespective no. of how shithouse Phil Hughes was playing. Mm. Yeah. All right, well, let's put a pin in that for now. Yeah. <laughs> because the first one I want to make is before they even left for India. Why on earth was Xavier Doherty selected in that squad ahead of Stephen O'Keefe? Well, when you take the Argus report into account here as well, where they said that you would be getting selected based on your performances in the, in the games that matter, not across the games that matter. Doherty and Maxwell basically getting picked on T20 in one day form. That was what got us in trouble in the first place. And Doherty was the perfect example of why it happened the first time around with the Ashes. How you can take somebody across to play test matches who's taken two first-class wickets during the year. The scary thing is, is Ashton Agar's probably, in four matches, probably taken more first-class wickets mm. than say the Doherty has. See, Agar, that's fair enough. You know, he's a young guy. They probably didn't want to pick him for his third first class match in a test match in India but just looking at the stats for this season, Stephen O'Keefe has been far and away the most successful spinner in the Sheffield Shield Xavier Doherty had done nothing at Shield level. Now what on earth is the point of playing Sheffield Shield if it is not as to be used as an indicator for test match selection Mm. Oh, really, what's the point of it? I agree, it makes it serves, it serves absolutely no purpose, and that's the that's a big you know that's a big issue that needs to be addressed. But you can only point that arrow in one direction. You can, the chairman of selectors. What's your what's your strategy for picking a team here? Well, it's the picking of the squad for this one. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the first point. How Xavier Doherty got you know within. 5,000 kilometres of that site is ridiculous. But then the second one. On the morning when I found out that Lyon had been dropped, I said off the cuff, that is potentially the worst selection decision I have ever seen in my lifetime. And now, a, a, couple, a couple of weeks or a month or so after that, I still haven't been able to think of one that's worse. Nathan Lyon went into this series as our number one test match spinner. His results so far throughout his career have been credible without tearing the house down. He averages a tick over 30, I believe, in test match cricket. The biggest criticism that people have had of him is that he doesn't run through sides in the fourth innings on fourth and fifth day pitches. 
and that at times he bowls too, um, I guess, he's, yeah, bowling too flat, the emphasis on just getting through his overs quickly, you know, keeping the run rate down rather than trying to attack and take wickets. But he is far and away our leading spin candidate right now in this country. He has gone over to India and played his first test match in Indian conditions where Shane Warne himself averaged around 40 runs per test wicket. Throughout the course of that match, not only should he have had Sachin Tendulkar LBW in the first innings for, I think, 30-odd when Tendulkar went on to make 80, but he then proceeded to dismiss Tendulkar in that innings and then improve significantly throughout the course of the five days. The difference between the first innings and the second innings was stark. This was our number one... Are you not talking about Mitchell? No. This was our number one test match spinner, struggling in completely foreign conditions to him, but already showing in the space of one innings that he was learning and improving and developing. They turn around before the next test match and drop him for Xavier Doherty. Now, leaving aside the basic incompetence of that decision based on stats and form, mentally, how do you think Nathan Lyon feels, having come into this series as our top test match spinner, having struggled in the first test but basically shown signs of improvement, yeah, and a lot of positive signs in that second innings, and then be told, oh, I'm sorry, you won't be getting a game for a guy who's taken two Sheffield Shield wickets this year. Yeah. That is the sort of selection that could literally impact his psychology for years. Mm. And I mean, the fact, well, the fact that it turned out that that wicket was actually a, a, a bit of a, a real bounce and burner, mm. so, to, so to speak, and the fact that the only other one that was, that was similar in terms of performance, he took seven for in the first innings, it, it could have cost him a test match. Well, for fuck's sake. I mean, the guy is our best test match spinner. How can you possibly justify not picking him for the second test and going in with Doherty and Maxwell instead? I mean, it's just staggering to me. That's like us bringing in Alex Doolan tomorrow and telling Michael Clark he's going to miss the next test. Where is the support for the number one spinner? Yes, he's not been the best bowler. Yes, if he had bowled better on the last day in Adelaide, we may have won the series against South Africa. But for God's sake, guys, this is the, the man in which we have invested so much time and energy and he's, you know, been in the system now for about as long as all the other 17 spinners that have played since Shane Warne retired. And you turn around and treat him like that. It just makes no sense to me. He is arguably our most valuable commodity at the moment, purely because there is no one else out there who has his experience and his proven track record as a spinner. So, yeah, for them to just treat him like garbage and, and yeah, potentially scar him psychologically very badly, that, that just really gives me the shit. Now, to Nathan Lyon's immense credit... He handled himself perfectly throughout it all. He came out uh, during or after that second test and, and said that there were no technical issues that he had to work on and then basically was our best bowler throughout the final two tests of the series and showed, I think, so much, um, I guess, ability to adapt to those conditions and find a way to succeed and improve his own bowling. But, yeah, I hope to God that come the, the fourth innings of the first Ashes test later on in the year where he's being asked to bowl out an English side for, you know, for a, a total that we're defending of 250-odd, that he doesn't have sitting in the back of his mind the fact that he was dropped for Doherty uh, just three tests ago.
So, ruling on inferiority? Well, for that one alone, he has to go. Yeah. That's just sheer and blatant incompetence. And uh, I guess the final uh, the final person on trial here, Joe Sutherland, is the Chief of Cricket Australia. Well, I guess it depends how you want to assess the performance of the Chief, doesn't it? Well, I mean, given that he's been in, he's been in charge now for 11 years. Yes, but throughout that period, our financial results and those sorts of KPIs would have gone from strength to strength. So I guess it's a question right. of how much, um, I guess, responsibility for on-field performances and those sorts of issues do you attach to James Sutherland and how much do you attach to Mickey Arthur, to Pat Howard and I guess the rest well, of the... given you're the guy who's team. putting all of those guys in those positions of power in the first place, sure you have some culpability? Yeah, as I say... Yeah. I mean, my biggest my my biggest bugbear with Sutherland in all of this is, is that a lot of the issues that popped up on this Indian tour, they spent a lot of money working out with yeah. the Argus report, but it seems like they didn't they haven't actioned any of that stuff. Yeah. So I think that you know, if you're in charge, you know, and you've you've developed that report that had some very clear findings, and you haven't chosen to execute them, that's actually a bit of an issue. I would have thought. Mm. I see where you're coming from. Um, I guess for me, though, is at the end of the day, is is James Sutherland really the one who would be signing off on those on the recruitment of the coach and the chief performance manager well, and those sorts of issues? You'd be putting the person. You're the yeah. At the end of the day, if you're if you're the head honcho, the buck stops with you. Mm. Because you can change things just as easily. You can change things very easily. Get the old Mickey Arthur, Donald Trump, Mickey Arthur, you're fired routine happening. Mm, but see, yeah, I guess I look at things as they stand now, and I think we've got the right man in Pat Howard, we've got the right coach in Mickey Arthur. Mm. I don't think we've got the right chairman of selectors. Mm. But so I guess, yeah, summing all of that and, up. And we probably don't have the right captain, but we don't really have an option. Exactly. There's, like, there's not much we can improve at that next level down. So <laughs> summarising all of that information... I don't know whether you can make the case for for Sutherland's. Well, I mean, could you could you make a secondary argument, which is something that has to be considered with both both Sutherland and Powell and Howard? Sorry, mm. is the how the how the level below is performing? If we're not if we're not generating these top quality cricketers, I mean, for through, me, the, through the system and how the system's working, then yeah. as the guys who are responsible for the overall running of Cricket Australia, so to speak, if the if the, that sort of things isn't isn't right are they yeah. culpable for that we, they... I mean it's a fair point you as the saying goes a fish does rot at the head yeah. so I mean for me my uh, my arch nemesis has and always will be one Mr Mike McKenna because I think he is has been more singularly responsible for all of the scheduling and just you know prioritizing between 2020 and Sheffield Shield and all those sorts of issues they seem to lie more directly at his feet than they do at James Sutherland's yeah and the fact that he's quite happy to bend over and take the the, the, the thing that worries me about cricket Australia is they're so happy to bend over and take it from India all the time but that's not cricket Australia mate no. that's the world yeah. right now there are eight test teams who want to use the UDR, the DRS and there's one that doesn't and it's not currently in play so that's not something that we're ever going to be able to change we can complain about it all we want but realistically we're not going to be able to sack the chairman of cricket australia because he's not willing to stand up to india okay so in summary after all of that four of five things you want to see for the ashes coming up for the ashes series 
right. with well, regards to all of the things that have went wrong with India and etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. Look, let's take a step back and be realistic here. Leading into this series, I expected us to lose either 3-1 or 4-0. The fact is that over the last 43 years, when we have had arguably one of the greatest test sides... Well, not arguably, one of the greatest test sides of all time, we were able to win one single series in India. This series, coming as it did right on the back of Michael Hussey's retirement and just before that, Ricky Ponting's retirement, and with our current um, spinning stocks at pretty much an all-time low, was never going to be, I guess, one that we were going to go into saying, we want to win this series, we want to dominate India, and we want to retain the Border Gavaskar Trophy. Mm. So, I guess... It's kind of weird. You've got to balance things out. Because some of the things that did go on, such as Homework Gate, such as the non-selection of Nathan Lyons, such as the continued insistence to keep Usman Khawaja on the sidelines, those are all very, very troubling issues to me. But... At the end of the day, I think we were always we were always going to get comprehensively defeated in this test series. Well, the, the thing that really worried me the most about this is that you could argue that apart from Nathan Lyon, Ed Cowan, and probably to a lesser extent Pattinson and Siddle, nobody really improved throughout the series. It's a fair point, but a lot of, well, I think all of those guys were playing their first tests in the subcontinent. I think Siddle would play there. Uh, yeah, but I mean, Siddle's performances were incredible. You know, yeah. You're not going to point at him and say you're the reason we lost. No. Um, Shane Watson was the only one who basically had past experience over there and didn't perform this time around. So, look, given how notoriously difficult it is to perform in India at the best of times... I'm not as concerned about a lot of those guys at this point in time. Mm. It's the ashes that is actually going to be more important, I think, in terms of seeing just where exactly this team is headed. Yeah, no, I mean, look, somebody... I I, I just want to talk about Cowan for a second. Yeah. Because... He's clearly somebody who has a very strong work ethic because you, he looked all at sea early on in the series there. But it was clear from watching him that he'd been doing a lot of homework himself, and I hate to use the phrase in that way, but that he'd looked into his game, he'd looked at how people were bowling to him, and he was formulating strategies on how he was going to deal with how everybody was attacking him. And I, I saw him at least adapt his process. I think it comes down to one thing, is that he has confidence in his technique. That's what it looked like to me, yeah. was that he was able to assess the conditions over there and say, all right, what I'm doing at the moment isn't working. I'm going to change my approach completely. Yeah. And I think they said in each subsequent innings of the last uh, two tests, he scored more runs and faced more balls than he had in the previous one. Yeah. So I guess it's just, yeah... <laughs> I don't know whether you can say it's work ethic and more just the fact that he has that better defensive technique. I just think it's both. Um, yeah. I mean, he, I, I just want to single him out because he's a guy who everybody always wants to put under the gun. But the reality mm. is, is he's exactly the type of guy that you need playing test cricket. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I was reading an article from Ian Chappell the other day who was saying that... Um, Australia's uh, you know, legacy of batting greats could end with Ponting and Hussey and Clark. And I was reading that going, well, mate, the one guy in that side right now who looks like he has the both the, the mental tenacity and also the basic technique and defensive game 
who could actually continue on that legacy of, of great Australian batsmen is Ed Cowan, mm. a guy who is, yeah, you know, Ian Chappell reserves a unique brand of criticism and complete scorn for. Mm. So I think he is someone around whom you'd want to be able to try and say, right, we're going to England. Yeah. Well, your, your job's while while Davey Warner is probably going to be out in the second over flashing to Jimmy Anderson once out of every two innings, mm. we're counting on you to anchor these innings over there in swing-friendly conditions, yeah. overcast skies and Jimmy Anderson running into bowl. Here's someone who we can look to and say, right, we're going to count on you to give out innings. We, so need, you, we need you to get to yeah. the third session minimum yeah. every innings. Yeah, uh, And I think that that's, that's the... Um, look, he's worried, but I guess getting back on track the um, the five points is this five points I'd like to from in terms or? of all of the hi- the hierarchical things that we've discussed because we've found them all guilty <laughs> of something <laughs> so look I don't know if there's either enough time or just enough yeah I don't think there's enough opportunity for us to fundamentally change anything before the ashes series for me it's going to come down to these team selections. Mm-hmm. And the fitness of our fast bowlers. Well, now, the, team the, the fitness of our fast bowlers is something, yeah, is something that you know that's beyond our control. Well, or is it? Yeah. <laughs> we'll leave that for another podcast. But for me, I can summarise these five points in one point, and that is team selection. If Ryan Harris is fit, he should be the first fast bowler named for this tour of England. If Ben Hilfenhaus is fit, he should definitely be included, and he should pe- play two or three tests over there. You know. But, his form, but he should definitely be right in the mix. If Jackson Bird is fit, he should be the next name penciled down as our fast bowlers. James Pattinson in for the fire, Mitchell Stark only getting a run if one of those guys underperforms. It sounds very very simple, but that for me is the, going to be the deciding factor on whether we not we win the Ashes. In English conditions, potentially bowling first on green pitches, if we can have the Ben Hilfenhaus of the 2009 Ashes, the Ryan Harris of each of his 12 tests so far in his career, and the Jackson Bird of his two tests so far in his career, paired with Nathan Lyon getting full support and... <laughs> Yeah, and selection from all the from all the selectors and everything, the coach and the captain. Whisper it quietly, but we could win two tests over there very easily. Especially if um, a certain vice captain pulled his finger out and was also bowling. Yes, because his bowling would be a very important weapon over there. Yeah, that too. But I mean, that's the big key for me is that if they go over there with. With Mitchell Stark as, I guess, their first choice guy, with blokes like Mitchell Johnson still in the mix, um, doubting the the form of Hilfenhaus based on his return this summer against South Africa, that's going to be a mistake. I think Hilfie on English wickets has proven time and time again that he is arguably our best bowler in England. Mm. And I think Ryan Harris is the second best bowler in the world right now to Dale Stain. Those two guys have to be right at the forefront of the selectors' minds. And, uh, I mean, look, if they needed any reminders about Ryan Harris, the Sheffield Shield final, where he, he, he got four wickets very, very yeah. quickly, all with absolute powers yeah. of balls too. So, yeah, if I can say one thing administratively, it would be that James Sutherland should personally drive to Ryan Harris's house tonight, handcuff him to his bed, and say, you're not going to the IPL, you're sitting here and staying fit for the Ashes. Mm. That would be one decision I would say they could make. The, the second one, then, which is just, well, the, those are the bowlers, and obviously support Nathan Lyon is the other key one. Yeah. So there's two. Oh, yeah. On the other side... 
Be prepared to drop David Warner after two tests. Do not let him continue just to, yeah, take this, uh, I'm all feast or famine at the top of the order and because I've been around for, you know, 12 tests longer than most of these other blokes, I'm an automatic selection. David Warner against James Anderson in England could be a disaster. Mm. And we've got plenty of other openers in that side right now. Be prepared to drop David Warner. Don't don't grant him an automatic selection. Be prepared to play Usman Khawaja for once. I've, we've been saying this for probably two years now. If any of those guys, I guess, you know, in terms of the... Well, I mean, he, should, he probably should be in the team right now, mm. potentially, ahead of Phil Hughes. That's the argument you'd have to make. But either way, if anyone is underperforming... Well, you also made the argument that at the moment they're only playing five batsmen. So if your best team is six batsmen, best keeper, four bowlers, then... Then Kawaja... Then mix is all wrong, and Kawaja should be in there as the sixth batsman. I guess. I guess what I'm saying is, though, is just don't have this mindset that Kawaja is going to be the perennial twelfth man. Yeah. There seems to be some sort of I don't know, just vendetta against Usman Kawaja at the moment. He should have played a hell of a lot more tests at this stage of his career than he has today. Mm. So, I mean, I, I'm not going to say you have to pick him for the first test because obviously, you know, he hasn't been given a, a fair run before that, but. What I'm saying is don't have a, a line sort of ruled through his name at the start of the series and have to be convinced <laughs> through, you know, three or four other injuries that you should finally give him a game. Be yeah. prepared to try him. The final one, Steve Smith. The guy who I <laughs> who I have pretty much ridiculed and, um, yeah, been, been a pretty big critic of, ardent critic of for the last few years now. He right now could potentially be our next 10-year middle-order batsman for Australia. Scary. <laughs> what he needs to do and what CA needs to tell him to do is quit piss-farting around bowling these pies. Stop worrying about being a batting all-rounder or any sort of all-rounder. Stop thinking of yourself as a bowler. Think of yourself as a frontline middle-order batsman who is getting selected based on that alone. Mm. Because right now he's averaging 42 in first-class cricket, which is a hell of a lot more than any of the other candidates we've got lined up and more importantly he can bat against spin which no one else on that side can other than Michael Clark. Mm. Yeah I mean he was arguably a bit of a fine. Yeah but but what they need to do is consider him a fine as a batsman. Yeah. Don't have him in there thinking oh well we can use him for 10 or 15 overs and innings as well. Well I actually think that he's he's probably the guy that they should be grooming for that number six spot of Mr Hussey because he can he can if he if he can play within himself and he showed that he could but he's also got the ability to expand his game mm. if he was batting with the tail. So yeah, and the I mean the other big thing that came out of India as well was that the tail actually batted really well, which is scary. It was the Indian top order versus mm. the Australian tail. The poor bowlers were having to bowl and bat. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I guess my point for Steve Smith is, though, come in with an uncluttered mind and yeah. don't be spending, like, 20% of your time and energy focusing on your bowl. Well, I just think remember what you did in India. Mm. Just remember what you did there because it, it was successful. Yeah. So... The, the worry you have with him is that there seems to have been someone in his ear for the last few years telling him, hey, you've got to keep up bowling those those leg breaks in order to get selected to the Australian team. No. No, <laughs> no, no not the way things are at the moment, no. There's such a dearth of batsmen, you should be, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, so, yeah, so to summarise then, pick the best fast bowlers. <laughs> 
Jesus, yeah, that's what it's no, all right, let, let me put it this yeah. way. Make sure that Harris and Hilfen House are right at the top of your um, consideration list for England. Back Nathan Lyon into the hilt, as always. Don't be yeah. don't be dissing my man Uzi. <laughs> yeah. Whatever's going on there, just sort it out and yeah. be prepared to play him in a few tests over there. Yeah. And stop yeah, trying to convince Steve Smith that bowling is a is a core element of his on field performances. Tell him to knuckle down and keep averaging mid forties with the bat and that's all that matters. Okay. Okay, there we go. So, wrapping up. Look, that's as I say, up. wrapping up, the Indian results in terms of losing the Test Series 4-0 weren't exactly unexpected. The more worrying concerns are the, the off-field dramas and, as we said, the evidence of um, disunity and uh, a fractured team culture that we need to sort out before England. Mm. Having said that, England have just gone a few balls away from losing to New Zealand in New Zealand, and we have a fast bowling attack which is more than capable of outgunning theirs in English conditions. And that's what that's always the key to winning test matches is you've got to take those 20 wickets. Yep. So I think this is really the series that could define the future of this Australian team. If we can perform here against the Poms who have beaten us in three of the last four Ashes series, then this yeah, then this side has the makings of a potential number one team. But if we just roll over, make poor selection decisions and continue to, I guess, persist with Watson in the middle order, not playing Kawaja, Warner just getting selected because he occasionally bats a runner ball, hits a runner ball 100. If we keep remaining sort of rooted in those basic mistakes, then, yeah, then we're in trouble. There it is. Final score? Oh, but it depends on if Harris plays. <laughs> if he plays, if he doesn't play. Uh, if he plays? Yeah. 3-1 to England, if he doesn't 4-0 to England. There you, there you go. We'll be playing this back, so... And I'll be making other recordings <laughs> for, for that purpose. <laughs> but no, I, look, there's no doubting we're underdogs, but yeah. I think we have a greater chance of performing in this series than we did in India. Yeah, I think, look, I think the bowlers will do well, but I think the batsmen will struggle. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that therein being the problem is whilst you have to take 20 wickets, you also have to mm. make some runs. And, so. and, and losing 4-0 to England, yeah. there's many different ways that that could go down. I mean, if we lose four hard, you know, closely four tests, mm. that would actually be, you know, reasonably credible. Whereas if we lose if four in the same manner that we just lost four to India. Yeah, yeah. yeah if a couple of them are buying innings, it's not going to look good. Mm. So. Yeah, okay, well, there you go. Until next time. Judge Jackson, you can step down from the Where, bed. Where's my gavel? Ah, yes. ah, I'm going to go find my gavel. I'll <laughs> leave everyone else to it. <laughs> Court adjourned. <laughs>